Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be here with you by our grace of our Lord Jesus Christ again. Let's open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. If you do not have a Bible in front of you, put up your hand. Our ushers are coming forward right now, and they want to put a copy of God's Word in your hand so you can follow along with us. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, and it's on page 580 in those Bibles that you just got, page 580. Well, here we are continuing, and it's our second last message in our series going verse by verse, line by line, through the book of Titus, entitled, God's Heart for the Church. And the aim of this series has been to answer the question, what is the blueprint God has given for what a healthy church and healthy believers are to look like? Remember, keep this in our minds, a healthy Church means healthy believers. Healthy believers mean a healthy church. And so as we entered the last chapter, chapter 3, last week, we have to be reminded of the emphasis of this book. Why was Paul writing this jam-packed letter to his son in the faith, Titus, for the churches in Crete. And it was this, to equip the church, don't forget this, loved ones, to equip the church for effective evangelism through instructing them on how to live selfless, loving, and godly lives that made them distinct from or in contrast to the immoral values and lifestyles of society. And so as we saw last week, here in chapter 3, Paul has ramped up that missionary impulse of the book. He's ramping it up. He's not sliding into the end, just kind of coasting to chapter 3. Let's get to the final greeting. No, no, no. He's ramping up the missionary impulse of the book. And last week in verses 1 and 2, we saw the marks of true gospel living that we are called to if we are to be effective witnesses for Christ who are ready for every good work. If we are to be effective witnesses for Christ who are ready for good work. But let's keep something clear because there's so much distortion about this across the church today. You'll see it on the screen. Remember, loved ones, good works are not the means of our salvation, but the mark of our salvation. Good works are not the means of our salvation. That means we can't achieve salvation by working really hard for God, but they are the mark of our salvation. And so this week, we see that we are called not just to be ready for every good work, but to be devoted to good works. He changes it, takes this posture of mobilization, get ready, and now be devoted to the good works that I have put in front of you and will put in front of you. And we are called to be devoted to good works by living a life that is, how are we devoted to good works? By being devoted to the gospel. Okay, and so here, as he did in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul emphasizes the gospel has to be and can only be the basis or foundation for godly living. And if we are to be ready, if we are to be devoted to good works, we must live lives that are devoted to the gospel. You cannot have it any other way. You cannot have it. Recall, loved ones, recall this. All throughout Titus, we've seen this. There is an inseparable link between belief and behavior. There's an inseparable link. Right belief fuels right behavior. That's why sound doctrine is so important, loved ones. To know the true gospel, to have our lives founded on it, is the only way we are to live devoted to it. And the more we believe, the more we are grounded in the gospel, the more we will be able to be devoted to the good works of of the gospel. And you say, well, wait a second. If he already emphasized this in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, why is Paul circling the wagons here? Why is he going back? Why is he doing this? Because he recognized the problem we must recognize today. We live in a world that encourages us to be devoted to anything but the gospel. Let me say it again. You and I live in a world that encourages us to be devoted to anything but the gospel. What do you mean, you say? Well, instead of encouraging a devotion to the gospel above all, it encourages us to be devoted to ourselves. 
Be devoted to self, not the Savior. Our agendas over God's agenda. Our desires over God's desires. Our personal advancement over kingdom advancement. Human relationships over our relationship with Christ. Our reputations more than Christ's reputation. We are all encouraged to be devoted to this. And, and, we're encouraged to be devoted to our possessions over Christ's proclamation. Do you disagree? Make no mistake. Every day, loved ones, no one can escape this. Every day, you and I wake up and choose who or what we will be devoted to. Every day. Moment by moment choice. Every day, you and I wake up and we choose who or what we will be devoted to. And at stake of that choice is nothing less than the glory of God through a faithful witness for him. Through a faithful witness. The glory of God is at stake. And so here in our text today, we will see three crucial truths that we must embrace. It's not an option. We must embrace if we are to live lives devoted to the gospel and see God increasingly, here's the exciting part, and see God increasingly advance his kingdom through our witness of him in his power. In his power. Ready? Let's, I'm so excited for today's message, loved ones. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. Chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. Let's read it together. Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Yikes. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing we see here in verse 3 is this. To live a life of gospel devotion, number one is I must remember my life before Christ, depraved. To live lives of gospel devotion, I must remember my life before Christ, depraved. And the question we are confronted with is this, who I was should humble me for gospel living, am I remembering rightly? Who I was should humble me for gospel living, am I remembering rightly? Look at verse 3 again, this sobering word he starts this section out with. For we ourselves were once Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Let's make sure we're interpreting from a right context here. The Apostle Paul, remember, he planted churches on the island of Crete, southern Greece with his son in the faith, Titus. And these churches are two to three years old, but the issue they're facing is the same issue we in the church face today, and it is this. The church is facing a crisis of devotion. Who they will be devoted to. Same in first century, same in the 21st century. And instead of living lives devoted to the true gospel... These believers, these churches are about two to three years old. They are not grounded in sound doctrine. They are not grounded in the true gospel. And as such, false teaching, division in the church, and immoral lifestyles that the false teachers named the Judaizers were promoting were compromising the witness of the church to the culture around it. And they were rendering evangelism 
almost completely ineffective. And instead of living lives of increasing devotion to Christ, they were living lives of increasing devotion to self and increasing devotion to the culture, taking on its values, taking on its priorities. Look across the landscape today, loved ones. Has anything changed under the sun? See, Paul knew, Paul knew that if things were to be corrected and the witness of the church was to be effective to unbelievers, the church urgently, remember Paul's tone for this whole letter is not like, hey, happy-go-lucky. He's like very urgent, very formal, very direct. He knew that the church urgently needed to be instructed and reminded about what lives of true gospel devotion were to look like. And so to do this, I love what he does here. To do this, Paul starts out by calling the church to remember who they were, who they were before their salvation in Christ. And then he contrasts that with what their lives were to look like now in Christ. Notice what he does in verse three. Here, he gives us the breakdown of who we are before Christ. Ready? For we ourselves, Paul's talking about you and me as followers of Christ now, we ourselves were once before Christ, here it is, foolish. What does the word foolish mean? The Greek word for foolish there means unwise or spiritually ignorant. Unable of understanding the truth of God and having it applied to our lives. Because that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. We were foolish, Unwise, spiritually ignorant. What else does he say? We were disobedient. Just keep reading the text. Disobedient. That means we were deceived and being led away from the truth. We were disobedient. We were rejecting God. We were rejecting his will. We were not submitting to him. We were not submitting to the authorities that he's put over us. That's why he says in verse 1 and 2, submit to all authorities. Because that's a mark of distinction of the gospel. Where the culture promotes rebellion, the gospel promotes submission. And so we were walking in disobedience. We didn't want to submit to God. We didn't want to submit to all the authorities. He says we were led astray. Just wandering away from the truth. The, the Greek word is planeo there. It gives the picture of a planet out in space just kind of floating around. That's us. That's us without the truth of the gospel. Without Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to receive the truth. We're just led astray. Every whiff and whiff. Well, that sounds good. Well, that could be true. Well, that could be true. We're just led astray. It's like reading fake news all the time. We were, he goes on to say this, we were slaves. We were slaves to passion and pleasure. What does that mean? That's a very strong term he uses there, and it says we were under the control, or we were in the service of sinful, wicked lusts of the flesh, eager for sinful pleasures. We were under control of our lusts and passions that oppose God and this world promotes as fine. But he keeps going. He says we were envious. We were envious. What's envy? Let's make sure we're clear. This is a desire to possess what you don't have. Living in jealousy and holding grudges or being glad at others' misfortune. Do you ever get that? Does your flesh ever reel its head in envy? Someone, you see someone maybe you have a conflict with and then, and then something good happens to them and you kind of get jealous about that. Why didn't that happen to me? Or you see something bad happen to them and you're kind of like, mm, I deserved it. We wouldn't admit that with our mouth. But what's going on in your heart? Slaves to it. Envy. Grudges. And now we see the outflow of envy. God is a God of order. The Holy Spirit put the words of Scripture in this order for a specific reason. Why? What happens next? Because we see the outflow of envy, which is what? Hatred. Hatred by others, and we are hating others. 
living in hate. Look at that. Look at the terminology Paul uses there. Lived in, what this means is this. You are living in a detestable and disgusting way. And you actively hate, actively hate the good things of God. Just look at the list. Charles Spurgeon said about this, he says, I'm not, when he was preaching this text, he says, I'm not preaching this so you can just sit here and write a few notes. He says, I'm preaching this so you can really feel what our life is before the Savior. Look at the list. Hey, church, loved ones, does this sober you? Do we remember this is who we were if we're in Jesus Christ? Because if you look at that list, this is the character sketch of the life and the culture without Christ. This is the character sketch. Let me, let me put it down a little more for you. Without Jesus Christ, this is as good as it gets. In our world, in our families, in our personal lives, this is the best we have to look forward to. You feel that weight right now? That should sober us. Look at the world today. Does this describe our society? Just look. Does it? As it increasingly tries to push Jesus Christ out of it and make ourselves the center of it? Yes. Look around. Look on the news. Increasing envy. Wanting what we don't have doing whatever it takes to get it and not caring about the consequences to ourselves, to our families, or to others. Increasing hatred toward God and toward one another. Whether that's hatred based on skin color, whether that's hatred based on gender, increasing hatred. Increasing slavery to the passions of the flesh. Pornography, what used to be unthinkable when I was born, is now common occurrence on billboard signages and advertisements in the shopping mall. It used to be unthinkable when I was a kid. It's just common occurrence. and increasing violence towards one another. Men against women, men to men, women to women. Increasing violence of culture, of course, because that's what happens when you walk in the flesh. That's where envy takes you. When I want something so bad, it's gonna lead to a hateful lifestyle, lashing out in anger. Of course it goes there. You take God out, you put yourself in, that goes bad. Materialism, gotta have more stuff. Slaves to the passions of the flesh of consumerism. Houses, clothes, have this. Don't worry about if you need it, just if you want it, do it. If you want it, do it. Slavery, alcohol, drug abuse. You don't have to look far to find this. Just even this week, read a news report that one of the um, biggest Magazines advertised to teenage girls in the United States is now promoting prostitution as an okay work choice. It's a national magazine. The most read by teenage girls in North America. That's this week. Are we surprised by this? Why would we be? That's who we are without the Savior. We are literally pleasuring ourselves to death, loved ones. The death of our families, the death of our marriages, the death of our own souls. 
professing to be increasing. You notice this? It's under the guise of this. Professing to be increasingly liberated and free, we are actually increasing in bondage and slavery to our sin. All in the name of liberty. No, no, it's not liberty. It's slavery. Loved ones, here's what should sober us the most. This was your life and mine before Christ. This is who we were. Until, by his grace, God drew us to himself, leading us to believe in him and repent of our sin and confess him as our Lord and Savior and saving us through the gospel. This is who we were. Now, when you look at this, when we realize this, this should humble us greatly, humble us greatly, and never leave us thinking that we can be apathetic or complacent in our service to Christ as we live as witnesses for him to engage the lost, broken, hurting around us, knowing that apart from his grace, we would still be in this wickedness too. Apart from the grace of God, this would be us still. And maybe you're here today and you've never repented of your sin. Loved one, the most loving thing I can say to you right now is to tell you the truth. And this is your life right now and it's only going to get worse. The truth is this. You'll see it on the screen. You will not live a life devoted to the gospel until you realize what the gospel has saved you from. You will not. You will not live a life devoted to the gospel until you realize what the gospel saved you from. So question, who I was should humble me for gospel living. Are you remembering rightly? Do you remember who or where you were when God by his grace reached down and saved you? I was reflecting on that this week, just filled with tears the direction my life was going. And God in his mercy, God in his mercy, does that humble you, loved ones? When you see unbelievers around you, can you put that back up? Please, team, put that list back up. When you see unbelievers around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, your family members, does your heart break for what breaks God's over them? Does the fact that unless the Savior reaches down and unless they hear the good news of the gospel, they are going to hell and separation from God for eternity, does that break your heart, loved ones? Knowing that it's only by God's grace that you and I aren't headed there if we're in Christ. That we did nothing to earn this. Are we walking in humility? Does it break your heart that they're enslaved to this sin and in desperate need of a savior? Does it fill you? Here, here's what remembering rightly does. It fills us with compassion and urgency and desire to be ready for all good works that God has prepared for us to lead them to himself by his power at work in us. Because if we don't remember rightly, here's what happens. Instead of having compassion on them to go at them with the gospel, instead of having compassion, we complain about them. Saying things like this. Well, I can't believe what they're doing. Why can't you believe it? God told us that's the best it gets. What do you mean? Why are you, why are you and I in pride saying, I can't believe the way the world's going. I can't believe what that person's doing. Where's the compassion to say, they need a savior. God, equip me for the good works. It's so much easier to complain, isn't it? Just complain. Instead of being ready for every good works. See, the first step to a life of gospel devotion is to remember what God has saved you from. See, the people who show 
the most mercy to others. Mercy fuels urgency. Mercy fuels the mission. Mercy fuels compassion. Mercy fuels boldness. Mercy fuels truth. Mercy fuels love. And the people who recognize the most the mercy God has shown them are the ones who give it the most to others. No question. Do you remember? Because you and I would be doing those same things we're saying, I can't believe they're doing that if it wasn't for God's grace over our lives. We'd be doing the same things. Sobering word. Remembering rightly, you'll see this on the screen, remembering rightly restores our witness and fuels our devotion. Remembering rightly where you were, who you were when God saved you, restores the urgency of the witness and fuels our gospel devotion, saying, I was that. When you're with that coworker, when you're with that family, you're saying, I was that, but God. But God came, and he can do the same for you. Let me tell you about the beautiful Savior. To live a life of gospel devotion, I must remember my life before Christ. But here, here's, as we remember... We must also realize our transformation in Christ delivered. I must remember my life before Christ depraved and realize my transformation now in Christ delivered. Question we're confronted with is this. My status in Christ fuels my witness for Christ. Am I living as one delivered? My status in Christ fuels my witness for Christ. Am I living as one delivered? Look at verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, here's the turning point. Look at verse four, where it says this. But when, oh, here we go. But God steps in. Paul says, this is who you were, but it's not who you are now in Christ. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, this no longer defines who you are because when the goodness and loving kindness of God, that is God's needed love and kindness towards mankind, when it appeared, he saved you. The Greek word there in verse five for save means this, to deliver from danger into safety. That's what salvation does. It delivers us from danger into safety by saving one from the power and penalty of sin that he spoke of just now in verse 3, the power of sin. Now what we have to understand is this. When Paul says, be very clear on this, loved ones. In verse 4 or verse 5 when it says he saved us, Paul's not talking about just because you're born it means you're saved. Remember, he's talking to believers here. Those who have repented of their sin and confessed Jesus Christ alone as their Lord and Savior. Buddha will not do it. Allah will not do it. Jesus Christ alone will do it. He saved us. Now notice in verse 4, I love this. Watch the wording. The goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. That means it was made visible and is described as a he in verse five. Notice the word, I love it. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Wait a sec. There's, that's, a, that's a personal pronoun for goodness and loving kindness. God's goodness and loving kindness is a person. Is a person, and he has a name. And he is our Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And God says this, he says, you wanna see all my goodness? You want to see my love and kindness for you? You want to see my compassion for you? You want to see the kindness I have towards you? You want to see all the love that I have for you? You want to see my plan of salvation to deliver you from the foolish, disobedient slavery, malice and envy and hatred that you are in because of your sin? You want to see that? Here he is. Here he is. 
Here is my only son, Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven by which you must be saved. He's here. He has appeared. He is my plan for your deliverance. I don't have a plan B. He's plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G to the end. He's it. The question is, will you believe in him? You say, well, I believe, in, I believe there's a God. That's not the same. God's not asking us if we know about God here. God's asking if we believe that Jesus Christ is the only savior of the world and have we surrendered our lives to him as our Lord. What you say goes. I'm not gonna pay lip service to you. Your ways, your desires. God says, will you believe that I sent my only son as fully God and fully man, my goodness, love, compassion, clothed in human flesh, my grace clothed in human flesh to you. And he lived a perfect life for 33 years. He didn't sin once. That same temptation you're facing right now, my son faced it. He came so he could identify with us in our weaknesses. That same temptation, that trial you're facing, my son faced it. He knows what it's like. And he did not sin. And he went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And he died and three days later was risen, defeating the power of sin for all time, for all those who confess him alone as their Lord and Savior. That's the good news of the gospel. Now here's what we have to understand in verse 5. Keep reading verse 5. Stay in the text. And this gift of salvation is not based on your righteous deeds. Notice that. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not by our righteous works. That means righteousness just means it's a big term. Let's not, make sh- let's not assume we all know what that means. Righteousness means doing what God says is right. He's like, you're not saved because you're following, ticking all the boxes. You can't even do that without his power. His power has to be in you, but you are not saved by your works, but by his mercy. The word mercy there means compassion and love towards you right where you're at. Hey, loved ones, God has mercy and compassion towards you right now in your filth, right now in your slavery to sin, right now in that addiction, right now in that doubt, right now in that hopelessness, right now in that fear, right now in that trial, right now in that sickness. God has mercy and compassion towards you. He is near to the broken heart. Will you call on his name? Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no one. You can't earn this. Isaiah 64.6 says, the best of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We think we're so good. No. Why? Why is this true? You'll see it on the screen. I love this. God's gift of salvation is not based on your merit, but on his mercy. That is beautiful. Remember that. God's gift of salvation is not based on your merit, but it is based everything on his mercy. And those who show that most mercy, that's why, are always the ones who increasingly show it to others. Mission is compelled by mercy. And when God saves us, here's the beautiful news, get ready. When God saves us, he doesn't just leave us, God transforms us out of the depraved and slave life we were in and into a new life in him. And you may ask, well, wait a second. I hear this all the time. What is this new life stuff? What does this gospel transformation look like? Paul started to unpack this in chapter two, verses 11 to 14, and now he expands on it further. Okay, this is a beautiful doctrine of the gospel. Get ready. Salvation transformation means this. Ready? On the screen. I am made new. I am made new. Look at verse five and six. Love it. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This needs to get us fired up today. Look at this. The term washing there, the Greek means this. Spiritual cleansing from all sin and defilement. Remember that character sketch we started out with in the morning at the start of the sermon? Washed. Jesus Christ, all your envy, gone. All your hatred toward it, gone. All of the malice, slavery, washed. 
washed. It has no power over you or me anymore. And then he doesn't just leave us there. He regenerates us. Notice that term regeneration there in verse 5. He regenerates us. That means this. Whenever you think regeneration, just think this, loved ones. Made new. Two words. Made new. He gives us a new birth. We are born again. He makes us new. He gives us a new life. He just doesn't give us a facelift on our old life. That person, formerly before Christ, is now dead. The one who's walking in increasing hatred and anger and defilement, that person is dead, and this is a brand new life. Just as Christ rose from the dead, this is a brand new life in you that has risen by his power of the Holy Spirit in you. He regenerates you. He makes us new. This is the good news of the gospel. And he renews us, loved ones, by changing our heart and giving us. Here's what he gives us. Ready? How do you know about a new birth? New desires, new thoughts, new power. New desires, new thoughts, new power. Instead of hating that person and being jealous of them, you can celebrate God's work in their life. Instead of trying to get ahead, you can lay yourself down as Christ laid himself down for others. Instead of losing your cool on your kids and impatience and anger, you can show love and mercy and compassion and patience and gentleness. This is what happens. This is the new life. New thoughts, new desires, new power, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice the term. Why did the Holy Spirit use this term? That God, in verse 6, whom he poured out on us, the Holy Spirit, richly. Why did God emphasize that? Here's why. The word richly there means abundantly. He abundantly pours out to us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to empower us to live for Christ alone. It's like that pitcher of water. You didn't get just a little bit of the Holy Spirit. It's like totally filled and overflowing. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Upon the moment of salvation. Here he is. Boom. New birth. Regenerated. He doesn't just rub off spots, give a facelift. You are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Secondly, Salvation transformation, number one, we see I'm made new. Number two, I am justified by grace. Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. So that being justified by his grace. Don't skip over that. Justified by his grace. The word justified there means this, to be approved or to be declared righteous before God. See, upon salvation, the believer is, get this, this is the courtroom setting. This is language of a courtroom. Before, upon salvation, the believer is cleared of all charges and punishment related to their sin. That moment of conversion, cleared. Cleared of all charges and punishment related to their sin. The penalties paid, forgiveness is given. They are completely forgiven and declared righteous before God. God, you notice this? God forgives us, but he doesn't just leave us morally neutral. He goes one step further. This is what justification does. Forgives us, but then it declares us righteous. Because God assigns, or that big word impute, sometimes you hear this, imputation, he imputes that. It just means he assigns. He gives us the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Because Christ acted as our substitute when he went to the cross on our behalf and paid the penalty for our sin. That's why I love, I love two Corinthians 5, maybe I'll do a sermon series on 2 Corinthians 5 next year. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. I love this. Watch this. Watch this. For our sake, your sake and mine, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin. That when God looked at Jesus Christ on the cross, he didn't see the perfect son. He saw, he saw your hatred, your envy, your malice, your slavery, your slander, everything. He saw all of that. He became sin. And look at this. And Jesus knew no sin. Perfect substitute. Why? So that there's the key words of verse 21. In him. In him. That in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That's beautiful. Let's get some clarity on this. You'll see it on the screen. I love how commentator Danny Aiken put it this way. By virtue of the imputed, that is the assigned righteousness of Christ to our lives, we stand, here it is, we stand before God just as if we've never sinned. What? 
just as if we've never sinned. And just here, and just as if we had always obeyed God perfectly. We are declared justified. Hey, if God sees you that way, why are you still walking around in guilt? Loved ones, why are you still walking around in shame? This is what it means to be justified. It's not just some big theological term. It has eternal ramifications and present ones for our lives. Are you living as one who's delivered? In the power of Jesus Christ? Oh, I wish the whole series on that. Let's move on. Salvation, transformation. I'm made new. Verse 5 to 6. And then look at this. I'm justified by grace. You didn't earn that. God gave it to you. And then look at number 3. Salvation, transformation. I'm an heir. (laughs) I'm an heir. Look at verse 7. Keep going. Verse 7 says this. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word heir there means this, the inheritor, the one who has inherited something, one who is given the right, didn't earn the right, but who's given the right to be a child of God and receive all the, all the blessings of his kingdom. The one who's walking in hatred and envy and malice but God, and now you're an heir. Open to the blessings, all the blessings of God's kingdom. As his child, you are adopted. Upon salvation, the believer is adopted as God's child and inherits or receives all the blessings of the kingdom. Think about this in the picture of adoption. Who initiates the process of adoption? The parents or the kid? Come on, loved ones, talk with me. The parents do, praise the Lord. They initiate that. They're the ones who go, whether into that home or into that orphanage, and they see their future kids. Think what God's doing up in heaven. He goes, you're just waiting. I'm bringing you to me. I'm bringing you to me. I see you. And when they're adopted, they didn't initiate that. The parent initiated that. And then what happens is that child becomes an heir. That child gets the family name. That child gets all the benefits of the home. That child gets all the grace and compassion and love and mercy that they did not earn. They get a new life. And that is just a very minimal picture of the beautiful inheritance as children of God that we've given. No wonder, no wonder. Yeah, you like that jump? Yeah, hey, hey, bring it on. I'll keep jumping. If you're gonna jump about anything, do this. Think about that. No wonder our status in Christ fuels our witness. Because that can't be taken away. That kid is in that home. That kid is now protected. That kid is now secure. That kid now has a future that goes beyond an orphanage room. That kid now has been delivered. And that is such a beautiful picture of what Christ does. No wonder our status fuels our witness. What are you afraid of? You're a child of God. You're an heir to the kingdom. And oh, he keeps going, by the way. And now, notice, we can live with a guaranteed hope of eternal life. And just in case the whole blessings of God's kingdom wasn't enough, here's a guaranteed hope for you. The hope there that he mentions in verse 7 is not like, gee, I hope that happens. No, no, no. The hope there means it is guaranteed. It is confidently guaranteed that it is coming for you, that you have inherited this, that none can snatch it from your hands, that Jesus Christ is true when he says in John 14, 3, I have prepared a place for you. No one's taking that. They're not gonna shut that part of my house down. That's yours, eternally, an inheritance that can never be taken. And this living hope gives us motivation and endurance in living a life of devotion to Christ on mission for him. Okay, your turn. Question now, ready? My status in Christ fuels my witness for Christ. Am I living as one who's been delivered? 
Look at that. Made new, justified by grace. I'm an heir. Are you living as one who's been delivered? Non-believers, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, your first step is to say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Lord of all and that you came to die for me because of your mercy, love, and compassion towards me. And I surrender my life to you. I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you, from all that filth we already looked at. Please forgive me of my sin and adopt me as your own. That's your first step. And if you're here today, pray that, mean that. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And believers here, question for us, challenge for us. Are you still living your old life? Your before Christ life? Are you? Living under guilt? Living under condemnation? Shame? See, the terminology shame on you has no place in the life of a Christian. Amen. There is no shame in Jesus Christ. The term shame on you means nothing for a believer. You've been delivered by that. From that, by his power, are you living? Are you still feeling enslaved to your sin? When the struggle confronts you and you're like, it's too powerful, I can't beat it. You have been made new. You are a child of God. You have the power of eternity that is waiting to give you a rescue from that. Would you call on him? It is not enslaving you no matter what the devil tries to convince you otherwise of. That does not have a hold on you. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. Are we too many Christians? We're just feeling defeated all the time. Remember what God has done. Realize the transformation that he did in your life to deliver you. Just walking around hopeless. And you know what this does? Here's what it does to our witness. This is why it's so important to remember. Because we get fearful. What's it going to cost me? We get fearful in our witness. We get apathetic in our witness. Are you remembering the transformation Christ has done in you. Let it fuel your witness, loved ones. Let it. So that others may come to know it. Others may be adopted. There are many in this city that are still the Lord's. And that he's still drawing to himself. He's looking for a church that is healthy enough to go after them. Let it fuel your witness for Christ. What do you need to repent of and turn to him in? Just repent of that. What is it? See, to live a life of gospel devotion, I must remember my life before Christ. I was depraved. I must realize my transformation in Christ. I'm delivered. And from this, we must respond. Here it is, of course. We must respond with good works to our new life in Christ, devotion. And the question this brings up for us is this. New birth results in a new life. Am I devoted to good works? New birth results in a new life. Am I devoted to good works? Let's read verse 8 and take it home. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul finishes his exhortation to Titus by reminding him that the instruction he's been giving him, he says, so that these things, what these things? Verses 1 to 7, the whole, the whole thing. All these things, what a life of gospel devotion looks like and the basis for it. He Notice what he says here. He goes back to that word trustworthy again. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. What is that? It means it's sound. It's sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine. It is right. It is healthy. It is sure. It is true. And it comes with apostolic authority. And because of that, Titus is commanded to insist. Notice the word there? Insist. Not just when you feel like it. Insist on these things. Strongly, confidently affirm them. Confidently affirm these truths so that those who believe in God, notice that, those who believe, he's writing to Christians, Christians may be careful. That means be eager or give attention to devoting themselves to good works. What does um, devotion mean? You'll see it on the screen. The Greek means this. To practice diligently, intentionally, and consistently. That's what it means to be devoted to good works. Diligently, intentionally, consistently. Hey, question, are you devoted to good works? As a response to the saving power of the gospel? Or are we apathetic? Are we complacent? Let someone else do it. 
And we are to be devoted to good works because they are, why? Verse 8, excellent and profitable for the evangelism of unbelievers around them, leading them to embrace what is good as the gospel is lived out and adorned. Don't miss this right here as we close. Sound gospel doctrine fuels sound gospel devotion. Sound gospel doctrine fuels sound gospel devotion. Information moves us to transformation. And we respond with good works so that we may live out the good works of the gospel and the power of the spirit. We are no longer, Christians no longer are to live for, be devoted to themselves, their agendas, their desires, their comfort, their pride. That's all the stuff of this world. No, 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 no. But out of a response of what Christ has done for them and by the work of his power in them, they are to live lives of gospel devotion through good works that adorn the beauty of the Savior increasingly and see God draw others to himself through them. The new birth was to result in a new life. A life that is no longer depraved, but has been delivered and is increasingly devoted. Question, are you increasingly devoted to good works? Follow up to that. What opportunities has God put in front of you right now? in this church, in your home, in your workplace, in your community, what has God put right in front of you? You say, I don't know. Ask him. He'll show you. Will you step into them to adorn the gospel to a world in desperate need of it? God's waiting. The world is waiting. Let's bring on the devotion. Let's pray. God, you are awesome and you are holy and you are righteous and merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God, I thank you. I thank you for your word being so clear to us, such a challenge to us, but I thank you that you have reminded us today what we were like before you came and saved us. And Lord, I pray that humility would lead to confidence in our status in you. And there would be a resolution in this place right now to live out our new birth with new lives, devoted not to ourselves and what we want, but to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. These are excellent and profitable. Ones who we don't have to wander anymore. We don't have to be led astray anymore. But as we seek you first, God, you will ground us, you will strengthen us. You will help us, Lord, as we look to you as our living hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.